0: Amen, and thank you, and welcome to worship this morning. We want to continue on as we've been declaring God's excellencies together all morning in song, and we want to continue that as we go to God's Word. Now, for those of you who have been coming downtown for quite a while, you might notice that we're missing something. We generally, before I get up to teach through God's Word, we'll generally have a confession, an assurance, we'll do communion, um, We'll sing the doxology together. Well, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it in a little bit different order this morning. For those of you who are visiting, you're like, I don't care. Get on with it already. I'm going to try, all right? But I want to tell you that we're going to spend some time this morning in a passage that is foundational and fundamental for communion. Now, Bethel Bible Church is a non-denominational conservative Protestant evangelical Bible church. And so we refer to communion as communion. Some of you might come from a tradition or a trajectory or a denomination or a background that calls it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist. Eucharist simply comes from uh, the Greek word to give thanks, the Eucharisto. And so depending on where you come from, you might have different experiences with it. And and speaking of experiences, uh, maybe all of you have had occasion to be in a worship environment in which communion was attempted, and it was so strange, it was so backwards, it was so different from what you were used to, or maybe it was just so poorly executed that you were palm-thwacking going, do these people even know what communion is supposed to be? I remember a certain church that shall remain nameless that during COVID served their congregants these little K-cups full of Formica chips and 10W30. It was horrible, and there's been much repentance. It was us, and I'm so sorry. Those things were horrible. They were not organic. I don't know what was in there. You'll be fine, maybe-ish. Or maybe you've been in a part where it was just so badly executed. I I can remember being in communion in another facility, as this campus, but in another building, and we tried so hard to figure out how to serve communion and get the elements to our people. We tried different plans and floor maps and flow charts. And there was PowerPoints and it was all the things trying to get the people who were serving to get it right. And I was standing on the stage and I watched it happen in slow motion as two guys came down the same aisle and handed off the tray. And I was, no. And sure enough, as these two trays approached one another, I just waited for it as a sweet lady and of course, a white dress and a dude as they turned to each other and clang, and just juice and the blood of Jesus everywhere. All right, it was carnage, horrible. Now the craziest thing about that is, this is the truth. One of those trays disappeared. We never saw it again. It just into thin vapor. It just it's gone. And so, if you're here this morning, I just want you to know there's grace for that. Would you please return it? It's just brass. We got it at Lifeway. It's not holy. We'd love to have it back. And you know, you know what? Wear a mask. Well, we'd love to have that back. I'm telling that story this morning in our first hour. And as we begin to serve communion, I kid you not, one of the trays hits the ground as I'm praying. Some of the bread was salvaged. You get to figure out which one. <laughs> we'll pray over it. It'll be fine. I want to talk about communion, this thing that we do. It's really fascinating. Communion in the New Testament church is written of and described directly in three of our gospel accounts. It is in Matthew 26, it's in Mark 14, it is in Luke 22, and then uh, indirectly it's referred to in the gospel of John chapter 6. And it has been that thing that the church has been commanded to observe with frequency and regularity. Sometimes the question is, well, how often do we do it? Do we do it once a quarter? Do we do it once a month? Do we do it once a week? Do we do it every single time? Any uh, sort of microcosm of the church gathers together. If there's two or three gathered in his name, should they have communion? All these questions. And the New Testament is vexingly vague about this. So I want you to know that about two and a half, three years ago, right as we were coming out of COVID, we investigated this, we studied this, we prayed on this, and we walked through this, which is why Bethel downtown, we do communion every single Sunday. And I will tell you why as we walk through this passage here in just a moment. Incidentally, I want you to know, We call the ordinances of communion and baptism, we call them ordinances. We do not call them sacraments, just so that everyone's on the same page, and I'll explain to you why. It's not a massive deal, but it's a matters deal. A sacrament, by definition, means there is a particular clergy class, i.e., me, that has the ability to transfer grace from God through me to you. There's a great, fun Latin expression by the work of the worked, working. Because I have special clergy unction. When I do a thing, you receive grace from God, but you have to have me in the equation. We don't believe in that. We hold to the priesthood of the believers. We don't think that there's a special clergy class that transfers grace per se. We administer. We sort of take care of the logistics and the details. And so there are ordinances that God, through Christ, ordained in his word. We practice the rite of Baptism, believer's baptism by immersion from Colossians 2.12 to demonstrate the, the death, burial, and resurrection, and walking around in newness of life that Christ calls us to. That's a one-time event. And then the frequency is the Lord's Supper or communion. And in this tradition in our context, we say communion because we really want people to be focused on the us-ness, the plurality of us coming together and having that great common denominator. So it was the last song that we sung together together, it sets us up for our big idea, which when I say big idea, what I mean is it is the primary point of this passage. It's not just some notion that I have. What is the primary point of this passage distilled down to a saying or a sentence? So for this morning, it goes very simply like this. Communion is the feast of the faithful, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've been to Bethel several times. It's never felt very festal, not a whole lot of feasting. In fact, there may not be more than 10 calories in that stuff. I know. But it's still a feast because of what it signifies and why it is so significant to us. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we've been in 1 Corinthians uh, since the late summer last Sunday, praise God, we're not back in that passage. We got to talk about Bethel burkas and hijabs and bonnets and all kinds of things, and we're not requiring women to cover their heads, and it's okay, guys, if you do, and all that stuff. We're moving into a much different kind of passage, but it fits in a setting. 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14 are this massive section nearing the end of his letter talking about how the church is out of order. God is a God of cosmos of order and structure and logical reason. The church had gotten itself all out of order and people were getting hurt. So how we do church, the ways in which we conduct our liturgy or our expression of worship really do matter. Now, Paul opens this chapter by saying, hey, listen, I'm proud of you guys. I commend you. You've done a great job holding to the main bedrock, basic doctrines of our confession. You've gotten way off kilter because you've allowed the culture to influence how you're treating the women of the church and your wives now beginning in verse 17 he's going to take a little bit different tack but you have to remember the backdrop for this whole section is you first corinth you are out of order let me bring you back to centrality so first corinthians chapter 11 we're going to begin reading in verse 17 i'll read all the way through the passage then we'll unpack it a little bit see if we can apply it we'll be done Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Hey, you guys have worked through that other thing pretty well. That's great and all. Here, not so much. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Oi, the thing that's supposed to make things better is actually a liability. It's causing problems and pain. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. By the way, I'm coming later and I'm coming with me, Paul says, with my cat of nine tails firmly in hand. He tells us in chapter 16 the things he's got a list for when he does revisit Corinth. He's going to meet and clarify. This is God's word and it matters massively remember that this is Paul's second letter to them. He's gotten a report from them and he's gotten a letter from them. He's responded, they've responded to that. And so he writes this 16 chapter letter to address some confusions and some errors that they are experiencing there in their church, specifically having to do with communion. Remember, the whole thesis and thrust of the letter is the gospel is perfect, we're not. The church was experiencing all sorts of division and disunity, fracture and fraction, And so Paul says, too much is at stake, 1st Corinth. You're the only church in this town of 250,000 people. We have to do this together. And the way we meet together, the, the manner in which we express and declare God's excellencies is a part of our presence in this place. So what you do, why you do it matters. And so he's now going to get into a very familiar passage having to deal with communion. And he starts off with rebuke. I have nothing good to say to you about this. You're doing it wrongly. Remember, he's been gone about three and a half, maybe four years, and he hears this report while he's sitting in Ephesus, and so he writes this to him. Let's start back in verse 17. We'll just very quickly address some of these things. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together. It is not for the better, but for the worse. What is supposed to be the great common denominator that we are all in Christ, male, female, Gentile, Jew, slave, free, foreigner, Greek, whatever, none of those things matter nearly as much as our primary passport color, which is gold. We are in Christ. And the feast, the communion meal is the visceral, kinesthetic, experiential way we experience that. Paul says, you're doing it in such a way that's causing problems. Verse 18, 4, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's a bit of a play on words. By definition, the church is one. But when I hear you come together, there's, there's team this, there, you're doing shirts and skins at communion. Holy moly, this is terrible. It's not okay. There's divisions. And then he says, and just perfect Pauline understatement, and I believe it in part. Ha 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 He's joking. He's, of course he knows. He was with them for 18 months. He's heard all the other stuff. He's saying, I, I, you are the kind of people, Corinth, you could even mess up communion. Wow, that's pretty harsh. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that's an amazing verse. God is not shocked. God is not surprised that there are divisions and factions. He expects it, and yet he superintends it for his glory and for our good. God is fully aware that the church is full of sinful people, saved by grace, being sanctified, but still having issues. God knows that. But it doesn't make him happy. He superintends it for good. We must be on our toes to not allow that to happen. But even if and when it does, God will use it to identify those who are great unifiers, who are peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, but those who will step up and say, no, the church is worth so much, we have to put away these divisions. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You may think you're having communion. I don't know what you're doing. It ain't that. What you're doing is completely out of balance. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. One gets drunk. What's going on? Okay, we have to do a lot of other scriptural synthesis. We're not going to do that this morning. Just know that from 2 Peter and the epistle of Jude, we know that the church was also beginning to practice what they called a love feast. No, no, it's not what you're thinking. It wasn't the first lock-ins. Relax, okay? It's a joke, people. Come on. Lock-ins. Anyway, anyway. No, not a love feast, but the Romans heard about these love feasts called Agape and the Romans said, "Oh, we want all in on that." And they said, "No, it's not what you think. It's not that kind of love feast. It's where those with less arrive and those with more and they all share equally." It comes right out of Acts 2 and there's no scriptural prescription for this the church just began to do it just because that's just kind of how the church did and second peter tells them that they're doing it badly jude says that they're doing it badly apparently they were doing it in corinth badly as well and so they kind of believe just just go with me on this the church I, the church kind of got lazy in their practice and so they started to just combine the two they would have the agape the love fest and then right at the end they would go ahead and just have communion real quick and Paul says, what are, you, what are you doing? You're minimizing the main thing. Don't do that. Remember, in those days, Sunday was a work day. Sunday was the first day of the week. Now, in our context, that seems very, very strange because most of us are from the 20th or 21st century, and Sunday's always been your day off. You get Saturday and Sunday off. Not in antiquity, not for the very longest time. Sunday was the first day, and so these people would come together very early on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Remember, Sunday's not a weekend. Sunday's how you start your week. And so they would come together to start their week to proclaim the work of Jesus. And it would be before their work. And so the wealthy folks would show up and they would have these, you know, maybe golden gem-studded goblets with a Napa cab and a ribeye. And they were just like, here we go. And the, the tradesmen, the kind of just the craftsmen who were working all throughout the city, well, they might grab just a little sack of grain, or they might grab just a chunk of some kind of llama jerky or whatever they had available. And then there were slaves. And the slaves, if they were lucky, could get some discarded little scrap of moldy bread, and they would bring that. And so the wealthy would just be like, check me out. Glug, 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 glug. And the slaves are sitting over in this church going, gosh, I don't feel very equal. I don't feel very affirmed here and it was starting to cause all kinds of problems in the church. Paul says this must not be. What verse 22? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Incidentally, those richer folks, they weren't worried about it. They didn't have jobs. They were landowners. They had slaves and other craftsmen that worked for them. They were liberal. I don't mean that they were democrat. I mean they were free. They could sit at home and just read and have a life of leisure as much as they wanted. So it wasn't a problem for them. The rest of the people had to go to work. So Paul says, don't do, don't do that. Don't come here to get plastered. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That's a complex question nobody wants to really answer. Uh, uh, what, was, what was the question again? Because by their actions, they were evidencing their emotions. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The strongest possible negative. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, I want to pause on that for a moment. This is massive. I've already said that Jesus' words are recorded in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, and in Luke 22 about communion. It's alluded to in John chapter 6. It's really important to Jesus. And it's really important to the gospel writers to convey and to communicate how the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist is to occur. So important, in fact, that when Paul is being off trained and taught and tutored by Jesus for three years in the deserts of Arabia after Paul's conversion, Jesus takes the time to instruct Paul separately. He doesn't pick up on this information in the Council of Jerusalem. He doesn't find out about it in Galatia with Peter. Jesus tells Paul personally, privately, and directly. What do we take away from that? That this really matters to Jesus. He really wants this known, and he really wants his bride and his body to do this thing called communion, but only as often as it matters to them. Now, that's convicting. But Jesus says, "I want you to do this. Every time you gather, and it's not just are around one another, it's a technical term, sunercomai, when you assemble as the church on the Lord's day. when you sunercomai, when you gather formally as a church, I want you to do this as a reminder of who I am, of what I have done, of whose you are and how you are to live and think and speak and interact and relate. It's that big of a deal. So communion matters massively. The see, is the feast of the faithful. Well, he continues on. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Why? Because Paul was an apostle. The Lord God gave him revelation. He shares it with his people. Apparently, while he's there for 18 months in Corinth, he instructs them, this is how you are to do communion. After four years have gone by, they sort of have a gravity to their depravity and they begin to mess it up. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed... I think sometimes we go right past that. Matthew 26 talks about it. Mark 14 talks about it. Luke 22 talks about it. If you ever read through an entire gospel and allow yourself just just to give your heart to this character called Jesus of Nazareth, and you see what he was like, his kindness, his compassion, his wisdom, his power, Restrained, and anything he ever did in thought, in word, in actionable deed, in instinct was all perfectly holy. And yet, he violated somebody else's expectation and he was betrayed. As human beings, we can tolerate a lot of things. We can tolerate uh, someone uh, saying something about us that isn't true. We can tolerate physical pain. We can tolerate all kinds of things. But if you betray me, that stabs right at the soul marrow of our personage. On the night that he, the innocent, the holy, the glorious, and the good, and the compassionate, and the kind, and the loving, and the available, and the vulnerable, was betrayed, was betrayed. And we're to be moved by that. I invite you to be moved by that. He took bread. Watch what he does. And when he had given thanks, when he, Eucharisto, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, he wasn't saying this is literally my body, as some denominations and traditions will hold to. That is a grammatical, that is a theological impossibility. He's not saying this is my body because he was his body. He's saying symbolically, but massively so, this is my body. Why is this such a big deal? Because the demand of the law is perfection. So the law of Moses was all about. This is the ethic, this is the aesthetic of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it is like in the throne room of God. Utter, epic righteousness in thought, word, and deed. And Jesus says, that's my life lived perfectly, accomplishing, in thought, word, and deed, the righteousness of the presence of God. It's like Jesus played golf and he shot an 18. And then he signed it in his blood and he says, take it. You'll never make it off the first tee, but take it. It's finished, signed, it's done, an 18 Not just in general ideas and act. No, no. In thought, in word, in deed, in relating. He perfectly accomplished the law of Moses. The demands of the law are perfection. And Jesus says, I've done it. I will have done it. I'm offering it to you freely. And when we feast on the bread of communion, we are agreeing with God because that's how God sees us. Not as a disappointment, not as an eye roll, not as a palm thwack, but you have fulfilled my core code of righteousness completely and perfectly. And then, and, then, and then we can relate to our Father, to our God, way more confidently, way more lovingly, way more glowingly and gloriously. See, communion is the feast of the faithful. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me because of who I am, because of what I have done for you. In the same way, verse 25, he also took the cup. See, because the demands of the law are perfection and the wages of sin is death. The law demands death for any atomic particle outside of righteousness. There's no, well, I got a D plus. I got a B minus. I got an A plus. No, no. One atomic particle outside of righteousness, the law demands death. That's how holy God is. And so Christ takes the cup. After the supper, they were celebrating Passover. There are four cups at Passover. Jesus takes the third cup, the cup of wrath. And he says, I will drink this so that you never have to. I will take all of the condemnation, all of the judgment, all of the wrath of God unto myself, the innocent. And we never celebrate Passover again because it is finished. Jesus even says, I will not drink this cup, the fourth cup, the cup of blessing and fellowship until I come again in my kingdom and I drink that with you. In the meantime, we do this, the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Eucharist. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was all about the written word of God, the code of Moses. The new covenant is all about the living word of God, Jesus. And he says, I will start this new covenant, this solemn binding built for blessing, but I'm doing it in my blood, not birds cut in half with Abraham, not my word spoken to Adam or Noah or David. I am doing this in my blood. This is how serious I am about this covenant in which I enter in with you. And then he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, thinking, feeling, being mindful of this is who I am, this is what I've done. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you know that when we take communion together, it's evangelistic? We proclaim his death, well, that doesn't sound like good news, until he comes, oh, because he's alive. And so that is the core of our confession In a single word, substitution. The innocent died for the guilty who didn't deserve it nor particularly wanted it nor sought after it. He did it and he died and he's alive and he's coming again. It is one of the primary ways that we demonstrate the content and the core of our confession is by taking communion. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that's taking it flippantly, not mindfully. He's talking about not considering who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Do so intentionally, mindfully, thoughtfully. For anyone, verse 29, who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I love, I love, and when I say I love, what I mean is I love 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29, because Paul pivots. He'd been talking about the body and the blood of Jesus, and now he pivots and makes it about them. Anyone who does not consider the body, in this case, he's talking about the bride, the people, the brothers and sisters of the church. Why would Paul have that thought? Remember Acts chapter nine. He gets flicked off of his horse, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the apostle, never got over that. And so Paul's prescription is when you go to communion, yes, you are to be mindful of your sin. Yes, you are to be mindful of all of the ways that you fall short of the glory of God and you fling those at the cross, trusting that God's already forgiven it and he agrees with you about all those things. And you consider, am I living, speaking relating in such a way that is causing harm to the body. Don't take it. We're not gonna point and laugh. We're not gonna record with the cameras. Don't take it. Consider the body, Paul says. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I get asked all the time, how come Bethel downtown does communion every week, but the other campuses don't, and a lot of other campuses don't either. And I say, well, if you start doing it wrong, a lot of people are going to be dead, and that's bad for business. So we just don't want to risk it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's serious, and God is gracious, and God is patient, and God is merciful. And all of us have probably come to communion, not in fellowship with God, not in fellowship with one another, Walking in darkness and then just done the perfunctory motions. But let this be a change. Let this be a moment of repentance where we don't do that. We take into us the finished work, the life and the death of Jesus. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Those who do not believe that Jesus has died and is alive and is coming again. So then, my brothers, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. I can hear the sound of my dad's voice right as he turned his ring over and said, shpack, wait for your mother. And I would, wait. In a sense, it's the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit saying, wait. Look around as we take communion. It's not just about you and your sin. It's about us. Communion is the feast of the faithful, the people of God. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home so that when you come together, it will be not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Oh, there's some other stuff. We'll find out in chapter 16. He's keeping a list, checking it twice. He knows who's naughty. He knows who's nice. Polyclaws Claus, coming to town, all right? Now, to really get the full measure of what all Paul's talking about here, we have to flip back a couple pages. We looked at this very briefly a few weeks ago. It's back in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Just these two verses very quickly. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I want you to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. It is what unites us into Christ and then we viscerally take it into ourselves. And I will tell you this. I don't believe in the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. I don't believe in the other doctrines that are from other denominations of consubstantiation. But I will tell you this. I do believe that communion is more than merely memorial. It's not merely an act that doesn't matter. When you've got people dropping dead because they're doing it wrongly, that's more than merely Memorial. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you. I'm saying this matters to Jesus so much. He tells all the disciples, he tells Paul separately, and it's recorded repeatedly for us. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all partake of the one bread. This is Paul saying, when we eat together, We're demonstrating the multiplicity of who we are, but coming together and originating in one source. Now, Paul knows that the churches in Crete aren't literally sharing bread with the churches in Thessalonica. No way. The churches in Paraguay are not sharing bread with the churches in Pakistan. We get that. But it's an understanding, an intentionality that when we eat, we are uniting with the saints who are in Christ across all space and all time. We are having communion which connects us to people who have gone before us a 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 20 miles from here. And we are to worship at the goodness and the expanse of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself. So what's a big deal? Why does communion call for eating? Why does it have to be eating? Why not a parade? Why not a statue? Why not a race? Why not? No, it's about eating. Because of course it has to. And to understand why, very quickly, we have to go back to the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, chapter three, we've been given the creation narratives. There is Adam, there is Eve, and they are walking with God with no veil between them in the cool of the day, and it is Eden. Everything is right. Adam and Eve are getting along. He vacuums, she cooks, it's perfect. And there is God, and the animals, and nature, the creation, it's all wonderful and perfect. And then something horrible and unthinkable happens. Eve listens to an outside voice. And she believes the serpent, that God isn't all that good, that God is holding out on her, and that she deserves more. She takes and she eats. And she offers to her husband, who offers little resistance, and immediately, The pangs of death shoot out across the cosmos. Now there is death, separation between God and man. No longer is there perfect fellowship, communion, and harmony. There is a distance, there is a divide, there is a chasm. Now there is a distance and a divide and a chasm between humanity and creation. Now humans fear tooth and claw of the animals. There is even a conflict and there is death between man and woman. There is a divide. There is no longer perfect harmony. Death went everywhere. Why? Why? because eating is just eating unless something you believe changes. Eve changed her mind. She repented of trusting God. She believed the serpent. She believed that she was entitled to more. She believed that God was holding out, and so she ate, and so did Adam. And things begin to get really, really dangerous until God himself intervenes. Genesis chapter three, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, the the angelic realm, the, the hosts of heaven, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then the narrative continues, he posts to cherubim, at the opening to the Garden of Eden, veils it and places them there with flaming swords. None shall pass. The error of Adam and Eve is undoable. It is unresolvable for someone to get in there to be able to take and eat, something would have to die. God says, God says, lest he take and eat and live forever, the way is shut lest he eat and live forever. And those words are not spoken again in your Bible for thousands and thousands of years until a carpenter's son from Nazareth puts down his apron and walks around the Galilee Basin, strolls to a seashore on the lake, Uh, that is the Sea of Galilee, and he feeds 5,000 males, not to mention the women and children, so 20 to 25,000 people, Jews almost entirely. He'll do it later for the Gentiles on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's the only miracle, the only sign and wonder that is recorded in all four Gospels. Why? Well, because it's such a cool, cool trick. No, it's because it's eating. Let me show you. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 51, very briefly. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 51. Jesus addressing those who were gathered on the hillside, eating the bread that he has just provided for them. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. First time it's been said in thousands and thousands of years. Eat and live forever. We can't let you do that. You'll be sealed in your sin for all eternity. Now he has come to undo the undoable error. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And he's going to say it repeatedly. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "'How can this man give us his flesh to eat?' "'Ew, ew, that's gross.' So Jesus pressed in, and he says to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man "'and drink his blood, you have no life in you. "'Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood "'has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is true food, "'and my blood is true drink.'" Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Eat and live forever. Eating is just eating. Unless something you believe Changes. Jesus wasn't speaking in parable, yet he's obviously speaking in very forceful, crucial, and biblical symbology. The disciples were like, Oh, this is the worst invitation ever, Jesus. Can you stop with the whole thing? Ah. And Jesus doesn't pull back. He's says, No, you, you need to understand, I am opening the way in what I will accomplish in my body for you. He is life itself. Communion is a really big deal. And so communion is the feast. Of the faithful. Let me just give three very quick principles from this, and then we will apply it by taking communion together. Number one, the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. It's the working definition we like to use around here all the time. One of the largest contrasts from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the force of the old covenant transferred to the institution of the new covenant. It's what Jesus came to do, and he did it. He transferred us from the old to the new. The old covenant had circumcision and Passover as its annual commemorative observance. But the new covenant has baptism as its rite of initiation and communion as often as the church assembles and cares about who Jesus is and what he has done. Since the church is what it is, the new covenant community of the spirit and not the old covenant community of the law, we observe a regular demonstration of our most central identity together as a fellowship as often as possible. Not legalistically. I understand that doing it regularly might make it become mechanical and monotonous and white noise to some people. I get it. I also happen to preach every Sunday. I promise. I know that gets monotonous. But we continue to do it because this is what the church of God does as it assembles. Second point goes like this. Jesus died. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming again. Now, that's the creed of antiquity. Christ is come. Christ died. Christ is risen. Christ shall come again. And when we take communion, that is what we are professing, what we are proclaiming. There will come a time when we won't take communion anymore the thing that is symbolic, that is emblematic, will finally be fully manifest when we attend the wedding feast of the lamb. Bring a napkin. Jesus can cook. But what we are doing is proclaiming that we shall again gather in this wedding feast of the lamb together. And this is but a foretaste. It's probably less than 10 calories, but it is telling us that Christ has done a thing and we will be the beneficiaries of it. Third point, Eat and live forever. Eating is just eating. It's a mundane meal, unless it is done because of a change in belief. Every time we take communion, it's an opportunity for us to snap our souls out of the regular, rigorous routine of daily life and remember what Jesus did and remember that he's coming again. We, we, all of us, we have a tendency to get buried and bogged down in whatever it is we're experiencing, whether good or bad. But God, in his grace, calls for people to be a people of his perspective. For that, we need to be reminded kinesthetically, experientially, viscerally of what happened in the past, how it impacts us right now, and what will certainly come to pass in the future. It's good therapy for us. Eat In just a moment, not so that you and I can somehow magically achieve everlasting life. No, 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 that's a mythology. No, no, no. Because of what you believe, the meal we share at communion changes everything. Despite all the reasons why I shouldn't be invited into this grace, this meal reminds me that I trust in God and his provision more than the serpent or myself or the world around me. Communion is the feast of the faithful. Now, I don't know about you, I sometimes need to engage my sanctified imagination. And I wonder what Adam and Eve must have thought, what they must have felt when they realized what they had just done, when the enormity of it began to increase exponentially and they understood that they had created an unredeemable error. And God says, the way is shut there will be toil, there will be difficulty, there will be death. Can you imagine how they felt? (laughs) I can. Have Have you ever anything? Things that you said that you can't take back? Things that you did that you cannot undo? And there are ripples of consequence, perhaps even generationally. And yet Jesus says, I will undo the error. I will redemptively recreate from the wreckage. I want you to imagine. Use your sanctified imagination. There they are in the presence of God. I believe Adam and Eve are are there. I believe they were atoned for. I believe they are in the presence of God most holy now. And at some point God said, number two, it's you. It's time to go. You're going. You're going to become one of them. You're going to become like that which you created to save them. Can you imagine the emotion that Adam and Eve experienced as they recognized they were the, the, the singular origin cause of all the separation, death, pain, uncertainty, and doubt? And the one who used to walk with them in the garden was now going to go and die. Die for all the wreckage they created. That's the gospel. Look to the cross. Communion is the feast of the faithful. Eat and live forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to now gather, as we will as a church, to take part In communion, in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist, I pray, God, that you will ready our hearts, our minds, even our bodies and our relationships. And if there is someone here this morning, Father, who does not know you, who is still trying to scratch out some hope of semblance of dying with their fingers crossed, would you persuade them by the movement of your Holy Spirit, irresistibly, would they be persuaded that Jesus accomplished what you sent him to do? That they would step out of death into life. I pray, God, that they would have the courage, the conviction to speak with someone, me, another pastor, an elder, a friend, a family member, that they would not bury this in the monotony of their day. They would talk to someone about receiving the words of the gospel. For the rest of us, Father, who perhaps have gotten a little bit mechanical in our observance of communion, would you make this rich by the indwelling spirit of every believer? Remind us that this is our great common denominator that proclaims our Lord King Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended, and he shall come again. May we be encouraged. May we be all the more increased in our affection and our attention to one another for your sake. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.